Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Sadie Alessio, is a family physician, as was her father before her. As an expert in trauma-informed care, she has been teaching medical students, focusing on physician burnout and advising on the health of healthcare organizations themselves. Here to share her story is Sadie Alessio. Sadie, I'm delighted that you were able to find time to join this podcast today. I want to start acknowledging the fact that you are a physician and a family physician at that. How did that happen? How did you end up doing family medicine? I decided to go into internal medicine specifically and ultimately to practice primary care because it was what I had seen growing up. My father is an internist. He built his own primary care practice from scratch, and I always saw him coming home at the end of the day, yes, tired, but also really invigorated by what he did to improve people's lives. And he was my hero and I wanted to be just like him. And it was kind of a no brainer for me throughout my childhood that I wanted to do what he did. I remember him being on call a lot and us being maybe out to dinner or at the mall and him having to take the calls. And I remember hearing the language of medicine and it was a foreign language and it was one that I desperately wanted to learn and speak. CBC, BMP, nephrolithiasis, what was this? And can I please get on the bus? So that's what uh, inspired me to do this. And when I was in high school, I applied to an eight-year continuum program at Brown University, which is located in Rhode Island in the U.S., And so I got accepted to both undergrad there as well as medical school to complete my degree. It's fascinating that despite the fact that your dad was unavailable to the family, as many of us are in primary care, that you were still inspired to follow in his footsteps. I'm intrigued by that. How, as a young person, did you square that particular circle? How did you see? that this was something that you wanted to do? I think genetically, I am built pretty much exactly like him. And somehow I always admired what he did. At the end of the day, when he would come home carrying the white coat, it was almost like a Superman cape. And I just really wanted to emulate that. Uh, My father is an inspiration in many ways. He grew up In Lebanon, his mother died when he was young. He grew up in a boarding school, decided to study medicine, worked very hard, got a scholarship to do that, studied in Greece, had to learn the common language and the high language, you know, medicine in Greek, then came to the U.S., had to learn English and medicine in English, built his own practice. And so I think I was always inspired by that story of of a foreigner and wanted very much to to continue that legacy of hard work and helping others. That is typical of the story of those of us who are migrants, isn't it? That you are brought up thinking you want to work hard and achieve. And there's an enormous pride in being able to give back to the community that's welcomed you to whatever part of the world you happen to live in. 100%. 
I think that's very well said. I want to now talk about the thing that drew my attention to you as a guest, and that was the whole idea of trauma-informed care. And given the context in which you've come to your work, I would imagine that there was a lot of trauma that your dad and many of us who are doctors experience. And how does that, do you think, impact on our lives as they unfold? My entry into this field of trauma and trauma-informed care was a bit surprising to me. I really did not anticipate that this would be something that I do. When I finished my residency and my chief residency, I ultimately elected to take a job at the VA, the Veterans Administration. So I'm a federal employee. I take care of United States military veterans. And they happen to be a population that is highly trauma exposed. They have higher rates of adverse childhood experiences compared to people who have not served in the military and high rates of exposure to things like combat and war. And so they come in with many symptoms of PTSD, depression, anxiety, musculoskeletal concerns, all of the other things that are associated with a life of stress, uh, stress on the mind, stress on the body. So that just happened to be the practice where I began my work. And I came from a family where love was paramount always making the other person feel seen, heard, and valued. And I did whatever I could to set my patients at ease, to make them feel cared for, to explain things in a way that perhaps hadn't been explained to them before, and ease their suffering by instilling hope during the visit, making them smile, perhaps, lightening the the gravity of their day and whatever they're dealing with. So with that context in mind, I remember from the start of my practice that I was doing things, very typical things that doctors do during a physical exam that were making my patients visibly uncomfortable. I vividly remember one day swinging my stethoscope off my neck to start the cardiac exam and the patient jumped. I remember another patient where I started to examine the thyroid and they stammered back. And so I simply started adjusting my speech, my body positioning, my behaviors in an effort to make them feel more comfortable. I didn't want to be harming my patients. God forbid, you know, first do no harm. And I slowly started these teaching these strategies to the medical students that I was teaching at Brown, where I was. And one day, a student asked me, Dr. Alessio, can you tell me more about your trauma-informed techniques? And honestly, I thought that she just made that up on the spot. I had no idea what that was. And when she explained it to me that this is a framework for providing quality care to people who've experienced trauma, I was completely hooked. I basically locked myself in my office for a month and read everything that I could and published literature about what is trauma-informed care. And I developed a more formal framework for a trauma-informed physical exam. At the time, I happened to be course leader of the Doctoring Clinical Skills course at Brown, and we decided to make it standard curriculum for all of the first-year medical students. And in partnership with the students, we implemented it, we studied it, we published it, 
we won an award for it, and now that curriculum is being taught at medical schools across the United States as the new standard way of examining patients through a trauma-informed lens. So that's that's my journey. That's my story. It's really humbling and amazing to be part of this movement because now trauma-informed care is becoming a rapidly growing social and academic movement. We're seeing it spread across public health, across legal services, across the public school system. It's really taking off. And I think it makes sense given our recent experience with a pandemic and with war and with racism and an increased focus on social justice and social equity. So it is really an exciting time to be involved in this work. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. So when the rubber hits the road and you are seeing a patient who you suspect or you know has gone through some traumatizing experience, what is the approach to that patient? The whole point of a trauma-informed approach is that we approach everyone with this universal precaution, assuming that they've lived through something deeply stressful, because it is a very common, very human experience to go through some trauma. One national study estimated that 89% of the U.S. population will experience at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. So this is very common to humankind. So when we enter an exam room, our goal is to give the patient back a sense of safety, autonomy, and trust. Because when we do go through something traumatic, whether it's physically traumatic, sexually traumatic, psychologically traumatic, or even transgenerational traumatic, that stuff can flip our world around. It can make us feel a deprived sense of safety and autonomy and trust. So any approach that we take in healthcare towards our patients and towards one another should aim to be collaborative and empowering. So talk me through this in brass tax terms. You see somebody who isn't necessarily a veteran from a war situation, but maybe you just sense that something's not quite right. How would you approach that? I think first and foremost, we need to make sure that we're proceeding with with our visit informed consent. You know, oftentimes we think about informed consent for a lumbar puncture or a knee arthroscopy, but not necessarily taking a medical history or doing a physical exam. So the patient does need to be alert and aware and buying into this agenda that you should be setting together as a team. And I think trauma-informed principles are, at least for me, more clear and apparent when we're thinking about a physical exam, because in my view, the physical exam is the one thing that we do as internists that has the highest potential to harm patients. I mean, if you think about it, they're often naked under a flimsy gown. They're being touched and poked and prodded by a stranger and being asked personal questions. They may be nervous about what they're going to find out out about their health. And so it is a higher risk situation that makes people feel vulnerable. So before the exam, in a trauma-informed approach, we 
Make sure that our nonverbal communication is appropriate. We are sitting or standing at eye level with the patient, not making any loud movements, loud, loud sounds or, or quick movements. We're keeping our hands out of our pockets. Then you set an agenda for what the exam would entail. You can even name body parts that you'd be examining. Make sure that it's communicated that this is standard procedure. It's not something that'll be done uniquely just for this patient or just because. You can identify what concerns, if any, they have before the exam. You can ask maybe, have you had difficulty with a medical exam in the past? Ask what you can do to make them more comfortable and even offer a chaperone or a support person to be in the room, depending on the nature of the visit. Then transitioning to during the exam, we want to make sure that we're attending to draping and patient comfort at all times. One specific tip about draping is that the patient should move their own clothing and draping if they're able to, rather than the examiner reaching to do so. You, you can introduce each exam component that you'll perform, explain why it's being done. It's being done for medical reasons. Ask permission before touching the patient or moving moving draping or clothing if needed, stay within their eyesight while respecting their personal space, try to use simple clinical language, and I can give an example of that later, check in with the patient periodically and as needed, and be efficient with the exam. Then transitioning to after the exam's complete, you can express thanks. Thank you for helping me conduct a thorough exam and discuss results once the patient is fully dressed and seated in a comfortable chair of their choice, and then finally ask, what questions do you have? So that's an overall framework for how to approach a trauma-informed physical exam. The overall goal is to create a sense of physical and psychological safety and really le lower, level the playing field so that there's a collaborative environment. It's really a meeting of two experts in the room and empower the patient to ask questions and get what they need out of the visit. Importantly, avoiding re-traumatization. So re-traumatization, an example of that might be when I swung my stethoscope off my neck and the patient jumped. I effectively swung a rope near his neck. Re-traumatization can happen when we're using potentially sexually suggestive or inappropriate language like hop on the bed for me, take off your shirt for me, open your mouth for me, things like that. So we just want to be mindful of how the language we use may be perceived by the other person. Where you're talking about consent, you're talking about what might make that patient uncomfortable that you may not be aware of, but that you're anticipating and not creating a situation that not only we're talking about re-traumatizing, but traumatizing the patient. Because as you say, Clinical examination can be traumatizing, particularly for the young person who's being examined, possibly for the first time. Correct. I think that's very, very well said. And one example that I think highlights how we can do a trauma-informed exam is the thyroid exam, because for generations, doctors have been trained to examine the thyroid by standing directly behind the patient, wrapping their hands fully around the neck with the thumbs in the back but the patient can't see where you are or what you're doing and the act even simulates strangulation. And even if you haven't been choked in your life, that can still be unnerving. So one potential alternative is to stand at the patient's side, 
within their peripheral vision, keep the fingers fully extended on the neck, and inform the patient what you're about to do and why. Then say something like, when you can, please swallow. This brings up for me an example of trauma-informed language or trauma-informed phrasing. I hear the phrase, for me, constantly throughout the medical profession, whether it's from seasoned attendings or trainees or nursing staff. We often use the phrase, for me, when giving instructions to patients, but it can enhance the power differential that already exists between the physician and the patient and can sometimes be sexually suggestive. For example, the hop on the bed for me, the take off your shirt for me, the bend over for me, open your mouth for me. It's simply not a necessary phrase, and so we can omit it altogether. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. Now I want to go to some of the research around this. Has the research demonstrated or illustrated that this is a common problem, that patients are often traumatized by the physical examination? Data is currently lacking on patients' experience of the physical exam. There have been a few studies of patients' experience of the gynecologic exam, specifically in adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, which shows that an overwhelming percentage of these patients feel emotionally overwhelmed during a pelvic exam. Some even experience dissociation and definitely re-experiencing of their prior abuse. So this is something we all need to be conscious of recognizing that over half of at least the U.S. population has experienced at least one ACE. When I say ACE, I mean A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experience. And so the ACE study was conducted in the 1990s. It's one of the most famous and foundational studies in the world of trauma. And it shows that over half of us have experienced something difficult, perhaps in the realm of neglect or abuse or household dysfunction before the age of 18. And research shows that, interestingly, maybe contrary to what you might believe, healthcare practitioners experience ACEs at similar rates compared to the general population. So traditionally, we have viewed trauma as perhaps only a gunshot wound or a motor vehicle collision, when in fact it can be much broader than that. And traditionally, we viewed trauma as something that patients experience, not healthcare professionals. But in fact, the opposite is true. This is something that is relevant for everyone in a healthcare system. The other thing that occurred to me as you were talking was that it is very possible that you would not be aware that somebody had been traumatized in some way When you start out that examination or you start taking that history, you don't know what words are going to trigger that person. So the approach that you're suggesting seems sensible for any patient. I remember a patient that I took care of for several years, and I I hadn't screened him for trauma. It was wrong of me to assume that I knew everything about his health. And of course, no, he couldn't have experience 
something traumatic. But when I did elect to screen him for trauma, and I kind of haphazardly breezed through that screening question, he said, are you asking me whether I think about the times when my father sexually abused me and my siblings? Yeah, I think about it. And it floored me. It was a really humbling lesson that (laughs) we really can't make assumptions about what people have or have not experienced and in what way, at what age, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to approach all people with love, compassion, humility. And I think that's probably the, the key to what's missing in healthcare and what can unlock our potential for reducing burnout. This approach for me has revolutionized my practice. And instead of viewing a patient perhaps as difficult or challenging, I now have unlocked this capacity for empathy to understand that oftentimes there's a lot of pain that underlies that. In the field of trauma-informed care, there's this beautiful paradigm shift from the traditional and accusatory point of view. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with that patient? It's shifting now to a more compassionate inquiry. What happened to you? What has happened to you that has affected you in this way? And it's really cool that we're growing a recognition of this. In fact, last year, Oprah, where was it this year? April, I think. Oprah released a book with Dr. Bruce Perry, who's a world-renowned trauma expert. And the book is called What Happened to You. It's firmly grounded in trauma-informed principles, and it's about trauma and resilience. What you're saying is increasingly important in medicine, isn't it? Because I was thinking, as you spoke about the data that we're now seeing across the world, the consult between the doctor and the patient, particularly in primary care, is becoming shorter. Multimorbidity is very much more common. The number of doctors that patients consult is increasing so that young people are not seeing the same doctors necessarily on every occasion. And therefore, the approach that we take almost has to assume that we know very little about the person. We don't know what happened to that person who is next in line to see us in the consulting room. And therefore, the approach that you're talking about is crucial. I I would agree. So where to from here in terms of the work that you're doing? I see that you're teaching this in medical school. Is that the next stage is to teach it more? Or is there some other areas of medicine that you'd like to explore in the work that you're doing? Interestingly, I don't think that I have much more work to do in teaching this approach at medical schools because it is being taken up by the student bodies themselves. I think it's this current generation of students in medicine that are called to something far bigger. (laughs) When I was in medical school, perhaps I had the option to join the orthopedics interest group or the cardiology interest group. Now it's like, do you want to stop human trafficking or solve global warming? So I think that it's in the current physician's mind to be an advocate for social change and address our social illnesses in addition to individual illnesses, recognizing that individual illness is often in many ways deeply influenced by our social illnesses. So I think that's that's good. What 
I'm interested in now, especially inspired by the challenges of the past two years, is how to apply trauma-informed principles to organizational well-being. In healthcare, we're struggling a lot with burnout. About half of physicians in the United States report feeling burnt out, and the rates are very similar in nurses. So this is a top priority as we're seeing people leave the workforce, patient concerns and interactions with the healthcare system and needs are only increasing. And so we're at a crossroads and a real crisis here. And I think that this is where I'd like to see trauma-informed care move is into organizations. I was intrigued by the early part of your story when you were talking about your dad coming home, still being on call, taking calls and all the rest of it. Do you think that he was looking back on it? Do you think that he was traumatized by the experience? I think that my father, uh, including many physicians whom we know, have experienced a lot of stress, perhaps toxic levels of stress in their lives. Physicians happen to have really solid resilience, impressive resilience. That, however, does not necessarily prevent us from experiencing burnout. I think it's important for all of us to be compassionate towards ourselves and one another as we think about what is the root of this problem and how can we come out of it successfully. And part of that is recognizing the root of the clinician's suffering. There's this alphabet soup out there of terms like compassion fatigue, the doctor's disease, moral injury, moral distress, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma. And I think moving forward, as we do more research into burnout and identify solutions towards burnout, we need to better understand why clinicians are suffering. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. In terms of social justice, the next generation of physicians are doing an awful lot of work and are clearly focused on making a difference in that regard. For those who are left in the profession or who are advanced in the profession, the way to improve outcomes for patients may be to deal with our own what happened to me question. That's something I'd love to explore with you. How are we framing this? Because you can imagine your dad coming home to you as you are now and you're saying to him, Dad, I think you might be a little bit traumatized by this. And he would look at you as if to say, what do you know about it? Right. <laughs> right. I think perhaps a really big part of this is raising awareness. And there are a bunch of exciting things happening in terms of reducing mental health stigma in the world improving access to 24-7 online mental health assistance, the Lorna Breen Act, and making sure that we have our, our spotlight on physician suicide, ensuring that we even have programs for wellness for healthcare professionals. There are now 
a bunch of positions for CWOs, chief wellness officers. I recently attended uh, the Healthcare Burnout Symposium in New York City, which is bringing a bunch of thought leaders into this field to help address this crisis. And the U.S. Surgeon General recently released an advisory calling burnout in healthcare a crisis. So we're at a point that is very scary <laughs> and very dangerous in healthcare, and it's all kind of dysregulated and in distress. But the point is to become aware of it so that we can work towards, in my view, trauma-informed solutions. We need to train our clinical staff and members throughout the healthcare system, perhaps people who are social worker colleagues, perhaps people in the pharmacy, perhaps people in the C-suite. We need to train people in self-regulation, support their the strengths that they already hold, connect them with resources in the institution and in the community that help build on their strengths, support their goals with autonomy, cultivate trust nurturing relationships and peer support across the system and ensuring that the background of all of this is physical and psychological safety. There's an awful lot of work in what you're describing and I absolutely agree that this is crucial if we are to improve outcomes for our patients because ultimately it's physician healed thyself. We've got to get to the point where we are starting to freely acknowledge that that white coat really wasn't a cape. It was a shadow of a cape, wasn't it? Right. We do need to join hands <laughs> as we move forward into our future if we're going to come through this thriving. Are we making progress? Do you think that there are signs that the system is beginning to respond to this calling? I think that there has been progress internationally moving in a positive direction. There are always examples where it's perhaps not working out. A family member of mine is a physician in a for-profit institution here in the States, and they recently made the decision to eliminate all administrative time so that all of your hours spent on the job are spent seeing patients. Nobody's going to win in that situation. Physicians are going to leave. They already have started leaving, and that costs the healthcare system a ton. And so, really, everyone stands to lose when we're not caring for one another. One of the perennial pro problems in healthcare is that often those who are making policy have never seen the patient and able to understand the paradigm in which we work. How do we educate them to the point where? They understand that the decision that you've just described is really lunacy. That's challenging. There have been some efforts in encouraging facilitative leadership and relational leadership and leadership that's focused on care and, and even compassion. There have been recent efforts to prove the business case for addressing burnout and sponsoring well-being. And I think we do still need a bunch more data to prove financial benefits of these approaches. And we have seen some good data so far that training in trauma-informed care increases employee engagement, 
It increases patients' ratings of their physicians in the realms of communication and comprehensiveness, and it can reduce burnout. So I think we're at the start of something very exciting. We do need more information and we do need more enthusiastic, committed people to keep using their voice and raising awareness of these issues. And there are people who are pioneers creating perhaps new models of healthcare, new ways to think. And this really does require cultural transformation. It's about the whole thing from the individual to the interpersonal, to the institutional, to the societal. And in all of that, we have one key partner, and that is our patients who see our pain. It's it's almost as if the patients are asking us, what happened to you? Yes, I've actually encountered that a lot more the past year where it's not that I'm visibly in distress, at least I don't think that I am during my appointments, but I have many patients who are asking me, how are you doing, doctor? How have you been? It's been tough. How have you guys been managing this in primary care? And that's so heartwarming. And it really brings it and infuses that passion for medicine again, because it's about being heart to heart and eye to eye with that patient in front of you. We know this particularly from primary care. When the door closes, there is only going to be you and the patient. It's a very private encounter. It's a very private exchange in which one person is responding to distress in another person. And doing that well, doing that from a place of healing, doing that from a place where the person who's reaching out to help is strong enough to help is going to be critical. Oh, that's excellent. Yes, absolutely. Completely agree. Sadie, the work that you're doing is absolutely crucial. It's been a joy spending time with you today, and we wish you every success. Your success will be the success of our future healthcare system. That is lovely of you. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. And thank you all to the listeners for taking the time. I hope you have a beautiful rest of the day and take care of yourselves and take care of others too. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.